0: Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
1: Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your
0: host, Mike Adams. And hello, everyone. Welcome to AOA and Merry Christmas to you on this Christmas Eve. So glad to have you with us, and we are going to continue what's become a Christmas season tradition for me. I've done this for a number of years on my shows, talking with author Ace Collins. One of the books he has written uh, a few years ago was uh, the stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. And each year I get together with Ace and we talk about some of these songs and the great backstories, uh, What's what led up to those uh, songs that we enjoy and have enjoyed throughout our lives how do they come to be and uh, just some fascinating stories around them and always get a lot of a uh, good response from our listeners who enjoyed this as well so i thought this would be a great way to spend christmas eve here on aoa with author ace collins ace merry christmas
1: merry christmas to y'all you know in speaking of that because it's christmas eve let's go back 80 years ago tonight 80 years ago tonight uh, America had just been launched into World War II after the attack on Pearl Harbor. The, the people of the United States obviously were shook up. They were insecure. You had men leaving to go fight wars on two different fronts. Uh, you can't imagine what it must have been like 80 years ago for people who were looking at empty places at their table, farm families and city folks across the United States. Suddenly, a life that had been so predictable was so unpredictable. And 80 years ago on Christmas Eve, Bing Crosby on his national radio show sang White Christmas for the very first time. And it overwhelmed the audiences that heard. It became something for them to cling to, something for them to embrace. Now, Bing was not supposed to even record the song until 1942. It was a part of the movie Holiday Inn that was not going to be released until the summer of 1942. Irving Berlin, when he brought him the music to Holiday and told him that he loved all the songs in it, but he thought he did a pretty bad job writing the Christmas song. Being heard, White Christmas, and said, "No, it was perfect. And don't change a note, don't change a word," is what he told you know America's greatest tunesmith. And then later, you know, when when the America was jumped into a war, Fleet First, and and so many people were on the fighting lines, and so many more were leaving. Being thought rather than wait till 1942, he had to sing White Christmas that night. And therefore, it became one of the three great Christmas songs released during World War II. Each one, uh, I think, resonates to this day because of what they meant during that traumatic time in American history. I know what it meant to one man uh, that I know very well who's still with us, and that's my hundred and one year old uh, World War II veteran uncle. And White Christmas, you know, I'll be home for Christmas, which being released in 1943, which has an interesting backstory as well. As well. And then the Judy Garland classic, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, all became, if you will, secular prayers that people used to give them the faith that they would once again at some point be re- reunited with their loved
0: ones. I think it's important to tell those stories because uh, younger generations that that hear these songs still today don't know those stories, and I think it's important for them to hear about uh, how how they came about and why they connected the way they did, and they they still touch people still today. That's the amazing thing.
1: What is? And I think you know there have been hundreds of thousands of christmas
0: songs written uh, over the past 1700
1: 1800 years since we started celebrating christmas in 329 and, and when you uh, when you look at the songs that that have been written very few of them have survived you only have one or two a generation and and why do they survive is it because they're better than all the other songs probably not they come along at the right time to strike the right chord with people or they they actually do something where they where they phrase it with a new point of view. And you would think after 2,000 years, you wouldn't have a new point of view on on Christmas, but you constantly see that. Uh, Mark Lowry with the Kathy Matea country music hit, Mary, Did You Know, obviously came up with a point of view that's never been written about. Sawyer Brown in country music had a hit several years ago with It Wasn't His uh, Child, which was an amazing different point of view from Joseph's point of view of Christmas that had never been heard about. Uh, One of the things I find the most unique and probably the most unique Thanksgiving hit of all time. As a matter of fact, the world's best known Thanksgiving song is what probably inspired Courier Knives and, and all of those Hallmark movies that people watch now, as far as the way they set up the scenes and the way that things look, as well as a lot of the other Christmas songs that we embrace. And it was written in 1840 in Medford, Massachusetts. And a preacher's son had been assigned to write a song for the children's choir. And he Took that responsibility and embraced it and went to the only piano in town, which was, on, a, ironically enough, on the street called Mystic Lane. And he could not write. He could not come up with anything that would work for the Thanksgiving service. And he went outside and he watched a bunch of boys with their, with their horse-drawn sleighs who were drag racing each other to impress teenage girls. So you had teenage boys racing one-horse sleighs to impress teenage girls. And he went back inside and wrote Jingle Bells. And Jingle Bells was performed at the Thanksgiving service, which was what it was written for there by a children's choir. And it was so popular, people came back and demanded that it be sung at the Christmas Eve service. Well, in 1840, on Christmas Eve, all these people from New York and Boston who were visiting Medford heard this song and they took it back to their their respective cities as Christmas songs because they had heard it at Christmas. and it shaped the way Americans look at Christmas from one horse open sleighs to snow. It doesn't snow in most parts of America at Christmas, but that suddenly became the way that we envisioned it. And all of the Christmas cards and all of these great traditions of white Christmas, the holiday in movie, all the Harmont movies we see right now were probably, owe their DNA, if you will, to the world's best known Thanksgiving song, Jingle Bells. Those are just, <laughs> you can yeah. actually you can actually take that a step further and Jingle Bell Rock written mm-hmm. was written in the early 1950s that became a big rock and roll hit is not a dance song. If you listen to it very closely, two men got together and remembered what it was like in New England to ride in a horse drawn sleigh. Listen to the words. It's not a dance song. It is a song about that describes what it's like to ride in a one horse open sleigh.
0: Yeah, those are amazing stories. And that, I love to hear those each year when we talk. And uh, we got many more to get into. Some of the uh, Christmas songs that we sing each year, it's amazing. We we sing lyrics about things that uh, most of us can't even relate to or, or do. Things like roasting chestnuts on an open fire. I doubt that many of us have done that, but yet that's such a big part of the Christmas songs. And we're going to get into more of that as we continue here on this Christmas Eve edition of AOA as we are talking with author Ace Collins, who a few years ago wrote the book Stories Behind Some of Our Favorite Christmas Songs. I I encourage you, if you've uh, you've never read that book, don't have a copy of it, you need to go and get that because uh, you'll get more of these stories like we're hearing here on our program today. So stay with us, we're gonna take, uh, we're gonna continue here on this Christmas Eve, looking back at how our favorite Christmas songs got started and uh, the stories about some of the people that made them famous as well. You're listening on this Christmas Eve to AOA. Stay with us. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up you're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture hi this is Mike Adams you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world information
1: America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA now
0: back to mike adams and welcome back on this christmas eve merry christmas to all of you thank you for joining us letting us be part of your holiday activities we are talking with author ace collins he wrote a book a few years ago the stories behind some of our favorite christmas songs asa we talked about so many of our christmas favorites uh originated around world war ii but some of our favorites go back centuries right
1: yeah yeah i mean o come o come emmanuel was present probably 1,100 years ago, at least 1,100 years ago uh, by some unknown cleric or monk. Uh, As a matter of fact, if you listen to this song, all seven verses of it, uh, it it is biblically correct, which is kind of rare for most of the carols that we sing, because the carols were written by common people, and therefore they didn't have a, a tremendous amount of biblical knowledge, so they have... Things like We Three Kings, well, nowhere in the Bible does it mention there were three magi. They just said magi. That would be three gifts. And, and so um, the same things. they have shepherds and wise men arriving at the uh, same time didn't happen. You know, those are parts of songs we sing. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is just just literally speaking right on the on the spot with everything it says. It, it was And you can also hear, as you listen to it, sung even to this day. It's not a very challenging song. There's only, I think, about a range of seven notes. But anyone can sing it. But I I think whenever I hear it, I I can actually go back to that time in those little bitty churches in Eastern Europe where you hear eight or ten monks who who have just had their prayer time and they sing that song. And you can hear it echoing off the stone walls and off the stone floors. And uh, the the nature of the fact that we're still seeing something that goes back 1,100 years, and it comes back each and every year at Christmas. You know, that's mind-boggling if you think about it, That that's something that we still embrace. And really, you know, that makes it one of the oldest Christmas traditions is to sing that particular song. By the way, uh, you know, it's also something that having a Christmas hit, we, we mentioned Bing Crosby and White Christmas in the first segment, Having a Christmas hit really kind of makes you, from an entertainment standpoint, immortal. We don't play Crosby's other major hits. Crosby had all kinds of million-selling records. Boy, but you know, we hear him singing "White Christmas" and "I'll Be Home for Christmas" and, and "Silver Bells" each and every year. You know that makes being Cros- Crosby relevant. You know, all these years after he died, and and the same thing holds true for others who have had really large Christmas hits. They become something that we cling to. They're a part of our tradition. It's, you know, I always tell people it's not Christmas for me until I hear Bing sing white Christmas. Right. Until I hear Elvis sing blue Christmas until I hear Nat King Cole sing the Christmas song. When I hear all three of those songs, suddenly I'm ready now for the Christmas season. And yeah, yeah, there's not another time of the year where we do that. I mean, you know, these traditions and songs come back at each and every year, and they're time machines that take us and transport us back to, in most of our cases, the rural environments where we were raised, going back to grandmother's house on the farm, whatever, we are there. We can sense it. We can feel it. We can smell the smells from the oven. There's not another time of the year we can do that, and that's thanks to these music and these and the traditions that come back in business each and every year.
0: Yeah, I always try to explain to my grandkids how big – Bing Crosby was, uh, you know, and it's hard for them to even grasp because, you know, th- they didn't, they weren't here at that time. But uh, you're right. This time of year, uh, those voices are back on our radios. And uh, I guess for recording artists, that's their goal to get a song like that. Mariah Carey sure got it, right? With uh, oh, All yeah, I Want Mariah for Christmas is, is You. Yeah. Mar-
1: Mariah Carey came along at the right time for a new Christmas hit. There's about one or two every generation. And, and it will, and long after they've forgotten all the other Mar- mariah carey songs they'll remember that brenda lee's the same way brenda lee uh, up until mariah carey came along was the most popular female uh rock vo- vocalist of all time you know but we don't listen to many brenda lee songs right now but boy "Rocking around the christmas tree is something that we listen to every year so in that respect she is immortal as well uh and, and those kind of things when you think about them uh, that's what every every artist wants. Uh, Dinah Shore charted more than 420 times, and yet we don't listen to any Dinah Shore music now. If Dinah Shore had a Christmas hit, we'd still be listening to her. Meanwhile, Judy Garland, I think, either charted 13 or 16 times. That's it. But Judy Garland's Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas comes back and revisits us each and every year, bringing Judy back to life.
0: Gene Autry is another one who is heard again this oh. time of year. Two, two
1: huge songs for Gene Autry. The first one uh, was inspired when he came back from World War II. Gene Autry was a in the military in World War II and was gone for several years away from Hollywood. He was afraid when he came back that no one would remember him. And one of the first things he did when he got out of the service was actually, um, was actually ride in the Hollywood Christmas parade, rode on champion his horse. And he was riding down the street and suddenly – children just got so excited they were pointing to him and they were jumping at him down and he's thinking they remember me they know who i am i'm still going to have a career and then he looked behind him and realized they were pointing to santa claus who was writing right behind gene autry that inspired autry to go back and write here comes santa claus here comes santa claus right down santa claus line and you you look at you look at those things and and that song really did reestablish autry as this important act and then, of course, a year later, he cut, um, you know, the classic Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which is uh, either the second or the third, depending on which chart you read, uh, most popular recording of all time. And and you look at that song and you think, here's the story about this reindeer nobody will play with. And it, what inspired it is an incredible tale. You go back to Chicago in, you know, 1938, the Depression, and you've got a man living in a two-room flat with a daughter and his wife he's poor and he's only poor he's got a good job he's a copywriter for a department store chain but he's poor because he's having to pay the medical bills of his wife fighting cancer and bob may's daughter climbs up in his lap one night and breaks his heart with these words why can't my mommy be like all the other mommies in the world <clears throat> and bob realizes that his daughter feels cheated because her her, her mother has always been sick therefore hasn't got to go play in the park or go shopping or or do the other things mothers do with daughters. And so he creates a story that injects his, his wife's personality, and that's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And he had no money that year for a uh, present for his daughter, so he he, 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 do draw, he he created drawings on paper and fleshed out that story and gave her a homemade book. And eventually the CEO of Montgomery Ward heard about that book, He read it, uh, bought all rights to the book, which paid off the medical bills after Evelyn had passed away, and Barbara and Bob got to move to a nicer section of town. And when they moved to a nicer section of town, um, they saw that book given to every child that set in Santa's lack at that department store for several years. Bob remarried, and his new brother-in-law was a songwriter named Johnny Marks. And Johnny Marks said, let's write a song about it. We mentioned people. Bing Crosby turned it down. Dinah Shore turned it down. Bob Hope turned it down. Gene Autry turned it down as well. But his wife heard the demo record and said, Gene, you've got to sing about that reindeer nobody would play with. It became a monster hit for Gene, and a, it allowed Barbara May in musical form to hear her mother's personality come back to life, which proves a gift given with love comes back magnified to the giver each and every year. By the way, Johnny Marks also wrote "Rocking Around the Christmas Tree and Holly Jolly Christmas. So here's one man. Who has written three of the best, best loved, and most recorded songs in the history of Christmas music? Wow,
0: what a great story! And you mentioned Bob Hope turned down Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which is ironic because Bob Hope really wanted a Christmas hit like his his buddy Bing had with White Christmas. Bob Hope wanted one of those, didn't he? Oh, he
1: desperately wanted one, and he uh, he set himself up to get one when he when he did the Lemon Drop Kid, because the song Silver Bells is in the Lemon Drop Kid. And and everybody thought, man, that's going to be Bob Hope's kid, hit because he introduced it in, in, in the Lemon Drop Kid, yet he actually didn't get to the recording studio to record it. And he kept waiting to record it and waiting to record it. And Bing, who had heard the song, decided, well, if Bob's not going to record it, I am. And ironically enough, Bob could have had the hit on Silver Bells and we'd still be listening to him on the radio because it's there in the movie it's him singing it. But his best friend beating to the punch and Bing had another major hit with this time a Bob Hope song, Silver Bells. And by the way, uh, the songwriters who wrote Silver Bells, that was not the original title. Uh, they actually wrote it because of a little bell that was on one of their desks. And they were playing with that bell and that gave them the inspiration for the song. And uh, they sang their song to... Their wives and their wives died just literally laughing. I mean, tears rolling down their face. And the guy said, It's not supposed to be a funny song. Why are you laughing? And they said, We're laughing because of the place the of the living. And they, they, wow. they titled it Tinker Bell, not Silver Bell. The wife, <laughs> they changed it to the Silver Bell and the rest of it
0: amazing stories. We're talking with author Ace Collins, the stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. We're going to continue on this Christmas Eve. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up And welcome back on this Christmas Eve. Again, Merry Christmas to all of you. Thank you for letting us be part of your holiday activities. We're talking with author Ace Collins, who wrote a book a few years ago, the stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. And each year I talk with Ace and go over some of these stories. It's just amazing. Love hearing them over and over. Ace, uh, we talked about some of these songs that go back uh, hundreds of years. What about one of the real favorites? I know a favorite of mine, a favorite of many, Silent Night.
1: Silent Night uh goes back just uh about 200 years
0: uh and
1: when you look at silent night you're you're thinking of a song that gosh you know i wonder how this got to all of us got to know this song and really it was quite a quite a we owe it to a man who i referred to as the johnny Ampleseed of silent night um silent night was a song that should have never existed um a, a young catholic priest in Obendorf, Austria. Uh, was in charge of his first Christmas Eve mass service, and uh, he went to the church to get the get the stove working and to get everything prepared for the service he had planned, and discovered the organ wouldn't work. Now, there's a lot of stories about my seating the bellows and things like that. Actually, it was just an old organ, and it, it had been on the threatening to go bad for a long time. It just finally went out on the fritz. And he was parent. He ran across town to his uh, friend's house, uh, uh, who was a school teacher named Franz Gruber. And Gruber tried to calm him down and said, I'll play guitar for your service, and we can sing the music with that. And he said, no, the music I picked out, is not. it won't work with guitar. And so Gruber suggested they write something. Well, two years before, when Joseph Moore had been visiting his uncle on Christmas Eve, uh, and we've got so many great Christmas Eve stories today. I hadn't thought about that, that, you know, we're talking to you on Christmas Eve, and all these things happen on Christmas Eve. And he um, he had written a poem about what it was like to walk through the woods on Christmas Eve. And it was so silent, and the, the stars were shining through the trees. And what he wrote um, was Silent Night. And that poem, he found, the miracle to me is that in a moment's notice, when he remembered he had written it, he could actually run back across town and go to his Go to his residence and find it. Most of us couldn't have been able to find it. You know, we wouldn't have known where it was. We would have just remembered writing it. He found it, Gruber set it to music, and that night it became the song that saved this priest's first Christmas Eve service. Well, several weeks later, the man who fixes organs across Europe came to work on the organ and he fixed it. And as he was talking to the priest about what was wrong with it and getting everything right, and giving the priest his bill, he said, what'd you do for Christmas Eve? service without an organ and the priest actually sang to him silent night the man wrote down the words and wrote down the music 30 years later joseph moore this priest now a middle-aged man is walking down a street in germany and he hears his song being sung in a cathedral and he wondered how is that possible it was just used to say the christmas eve service at the church years ago he hadn't tried to publish it well this man who fixed the organ had taken and taught that song to everyone at every stop where he had worked on organs. And by the time that Joseph Moore heard it again after writing it 30 years before, it was even a, one of the most popular Christmas songs in America and had been translated into many different languages. So without meaning to or without knowing it, Joseph Moore had, has given the world what is now not the most, not the most sales as far as shoot mu- seat music or as far as records go. But as far as being the most sung Christmas song, the most sung Christmas song is Silent Night. And it we know it literally because of a guy who fixed the organ deciding it was important enough to teach to everyone he met. By the way, the name of the church where that
0: service was in Obendorf, Austria, two centuries ago, St. Nicholas. Wow. Incredible story. And so many of these stories, uh, these songs, their origins you would have never, could have never have imagined that they would be popular and still sung hundreds of years later.
1: None of the, none of the people who wrote these songs, they, they wrote them for moments. I mean, you know, like Mark Lowry, when he wrote the modern hit, Mary, Did You Know, uh, did not really think he had written a Christmas hit. He was just working on a different thing for Christmas, and, and it hit him. What would it be like to have interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus? And so he... Per- he thought about that in the sense that he was a reporter interviewing Mary, uh, and and that led to a song that t- took him two years to even find somebody who could write the music for it. Uh, Kathy Matea recorded in country music and it became a hit. But it it, it surprised him. I mean, you know, uh, the song that Away in the Manger, which by the way is called Luther's Cradle Hymn, so many people believe it was written by Martin Luther. It was not. It was written by a a Dutch farmer in Pennsylvania. Uh, we don't know his name, uh, but we know it came out of that area. We know it was. We know from history it was written by a farmer. And, and so it was written, uh, I'm sure, for this farmer just to have something to share the story with his children. And um, it eventually found publication. The man who published it had no idea who wrote it, but it sounded like Martin Luther to him, so we called it Luther's Cradle Hymn. So, you know, there are actually places in Germany that show Luther singing this song that was written 300 years after his death to children. But we owe that to an American farmer. And isn't it appropriate that a farmer actually talked about the animals in the manger and all the other things that are essential to that, that nativity scene? And nativity scenes after gifts, the wise men brought gifts. That's the oldest tradition. But the next most oldest tradition that we still use is our nativity scenes. And they go back even before the time... When we were celebrating Christmas, we started actually. Christmas had a date to celebrate starting in 329, is when the church assigned a date to Christmas, December 25th. And before that, though, churches had nativity scenes in it that were celebrating uh, that original Christmas. And so, nativities after gifts are the oldest Christmas tradition.
0: Hark, the herald angels sing. What's the story behind that?
1: It's kind of an interesting story because it was written by Charles Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, and Wesley had been inspired to write it by reading scripture, and had originally wrote his song, which which he wrote, uh, was Hark the the Belkin Ring, which is scripturally accurate. I mean, a a belkin uh, is heavenly host, and the Bible talks about heavenly host. It doesn't talk about angels, and yet when it was... Later, published the publisher changed it to angels because it already knew what angels were and they had no idea what Velcan were, and, and it upset Wesley a great deal. It was also uh, actually uh, assigned different music, and Wesley was somebody who wanted the original music side to it too. But I don't think without changing those that those lyrics and 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 also giving it the mes- message in song that it creates with that that majestic uh music that goes with it we would know that song today uh, and, and so uh you know we mentioned that it's unique how we latch on to certain music and that's one of those songs that it took the marriage of two different people coming together at two different times and changing a couple of lyrics for it to become popular and uh hark the herald angels sing therefore is one of those things, one of those songs like "Joy to the World" and others that is a very popular. Another one, you know, the Messiah, um, was written by a man, Handel, who had been the Elvis of his time and followed upon hard times when the style of music he was writing, you know, ceased to be popular. He went from entertaining the kings of England to living on the wrong side of town, fearing that his debt collector was going to come. He couldn't pay his debts. He was desperately poor. He thought he would die in a debtor's prison A uh, man named Charles Jennings, who was an old friend of his. who was kind of an eccentric type that no one paid any attention to, sent, the, uh, sent this great has-been composer an idea uh, with Scripture in the Old Testament looking forward to the birth of the Messiah. And even though he had no place to sell it and nobody was interested in his work, he had nothing else to do, so this old feeble man wrote this oratorio this musical called messiah well a few months later he got a a letter from a friend in ireland to ask him to come to ireland to conduct a series of charity concerts for hospitals and he he left england as much as anything else to escape escape debt collectors the music he took with him was the messiah it went over so well that they heard about it in london he came back and performed it in london and king james when he heard it for the first time at the third performance stood up as they sang the Messiah. And because when the king stands up, everybody else stands up in England. Uh, that became the tradition of of standing up during Handel's Messiah. It was originally sung at Easter every year, but it was transferred about 100 years ago to Christmas. And it was because people could, that it was such a moving uh, musical that people would pay money to go see it. And what churches did was they raised monies for charities, as did cities by performing Handel's Messiah and no piece of music has ever raised more money for the poor than this one and it isn't an ironic that it was written by a guy who was so desperately poor he couldn't pay his bills
0: amazing the power of these songs the memories they evoke the feelings they evoke uh, that it's just such a part of us these Christmas songs
1: it is and the mag Mere fact that we, I think, their power is in the fact that Christmas comes back to us each year. In in, when in World War II, when Franklin Roosevelt asked stores to start decorating early and sell Christmas merchandise early, uh, and usually before that, Christmas was about a week long, the celebration of it. But that extended to four or five, six weeks, and they did that so that people could buy presents and get them in the mail so that servicemen on the front lines could get them before Christmas or on Christmas Day and open Christmas packages. And that's why it was done. And I think when once that, that holiday was extended and all these songs came back each and every year and were played for three and four and five weeks, uh, it gave us something special to hold on to during the Christmas season and brought back all those memories each and every
0: year. We're talking with author Ace Collins, the stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. We're going to come back and wrap things up on this Christmas Eve. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture don't go away more Adams on agriculture coming right up you're listening to AOA Adams on agriculture hi this is Mike Adams you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world
1: information
0: America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA now back to Mike Adams and welcome back on this christmas eve we wrap up our conversation our annual conversation with author ace collins the story behind our favorite christmas songs ace uh, thought we'd maybe wrap up talking about some of the the funny the, the the novelty christmas songs that have come about you know things like grandma got run over by a reindeer or the barking dogs uh, even even the chipmunks uh, a part of the the christmas tradition for many
1: yeah, and if you think about it, it's Christmas is also a fun time. It's for children. It has been since about 1840. It's been a holiday that since 1840 has focused on children, so why not have some fun and merriment? Uh, I think Grandma Got Run Over by uh, Reindeer is probably the most fun of all of the songs you mentioned, and I think it's fun because um, a Vanderbilt University student who had a band, one of his bandmates actually looked at him and said, I bet you can't write a song about where somebody dies in the first verse and people will still listen to it it was around the christmas season so he actually wrote grandma got run over by a reindeer and uh that should have never been a hit i mean you know because they just played it locally and somebody actually heard it it ended up in the hands of a novelty act elmo and patsy and they recorded it and it became this surprise monster christmas hit and by the way i do a lot of christian radio and I do a lot of secular radio at Christmas, both. And I keep track of callers asking me, what's the most imp- what's the so- story you want to hear about? What's the song you want to know the story behind? On Christian radio, my number one-ass song is Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. On secular radio, it's "All holy night. So go figure that out. Wow. I have no idea even how to explain that. But Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer became the monster hit. But the most interesting element to me about it is that <laughs> – the guy who wrote it has never had another hit. He never published another song. It was the only song he ever did. His job, by the way, is, and this is hilarious, he's an air traffic controller. So uh, yeah, here's a man who is involved in an aerial accident involving Santa in a song who ultimately becomes a man who controls airplanes as they come into airports and prevents accidents. So uh, that that's one of those great songs. You know, the, the chipmunks were a great novelty actor at a time when novelty songs were very popular. It was the late fifties. And you had one eyed, one horned, purple, flying purple people leader and please, Mr. Custer. And the list goes on of novelty songs were just sweeping the nation at that time. So why not create one using a technique that speeds up both voices? And you ultimately had the chipmunks who and the chipmunks were kind of made by that funny Christmas song. which you can listen to it, it's kind of a sweet little song. But it is, um, nevertheless, it's the voices that 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 make that song. Uh, Elvis Presley, by the way, did not really want to record "Blue Christmas," a song that had dated back to 1946. It had been initially uh, recorded by Hugo Winter Garden and his orchestra, and then later became kind of a minor country hit for Ernest Tubb and Elvis had heard it, Ernest Tubb's singing and Elvis sang it, but he wanted to do serious Christmas music. He wanted to do things like Silent Night and Holy Night and A Little Town of Bethlehem. He, he, he really didn't want to put this particular song on his album. And so he actually had something added that he thought would, that rca that his recording company wouldn't like and that's that woo-woo that you hear in the background of yep. uh, the mm-hmm. background vocals and millie kirkman had the high part on that the Jordanaires had the background and he thought well that will actually make the song um where rca will think it's kind of a wasted effort and instead it, it is probably the thing that everybody remembers about blue christmas elvis's favorite christmas song we ever recorded by the way was uh why Can't Every Day Be Like Christmas, which I think is one of those great undiscovered Christmas songs that should yes. be a classic. It's not. Yeah. Um, and so you you look at those plethora of songs. But, you know, if you think about it, Rudolph is a novelty song. If, you mean Reindeer That could Fly? You know, if you think about it, um, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, which, by the way, um, the Catholic churches in Boston banned it for being kind of immoral in a way because mama it it implied that mama was kissing santa claus well you know obviously dad was dressed up like santa claus but you know that was you know they, they were afraid kids wouldn't get that message uh you know uh the country hit you know that buck owens had you know uh, santa looks a lot like daddy um those those are all reflective of of unique views of christmas from a children's standpoint and, and i think when you look at the books like frosty the snowman and others those are those are wonderful little exposés of of the timelessness of christmas and the agelessness of christmas and each one of those things brings us back a smile and i have no idea who ever thought you know imitating a bunch of dogs singing Jingle bells would actually fly <laughs> but it did and and it became a pretty important song and it's on my jukebox right now for heaven's sakes when i turn over at a 1957 world that's all christmas music during the during the month of december and i actually have the singing dogs um singing christmas somebody released either this year or last year a a uh, christmas song with cats singing it so to, as an answer to the dog song so um those will continue to go on and grow um but I think you know when you come right down to it, you, you we all gravitate back to those those timeless pieces that that unlock the fabric of what this season really means to us and, and how we picture Christmas. And from a spiritual standpoint, it is songs like "Oh Holy Night" and "Silent Night" and "Oh o Come All Ye Faithful." And from a a standpoint of a popular standpoint. It's, you know, it's got to be, you mentioned chestnuts roasting over an open fire. That really started as a novelty song, too, because Mel Tillis and, and his writing buddy were doing nothing more than a hot day in, in, in California than trying to stay cool, and they were remembering things from winter's past when they grew up in New England, and Jack Frost nipping at your nose, and they were just saying those things out loud. They started writing down a lot of song. It couldn't be Christmas without what medical man gave us. And that told, singing the
0: Christmas song. Great story. Ace Collins, thank you so much. Glad we were able to continue the tradition another year. Merry Christmas to you.
1: Merry Christmas and a mighty Christmas to
0: all of you. Thank you. Author Ace Collins, stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. Again, thanks for joining us. Merry Christmas, everyone, from all of us at AOA.